Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Sportive Podcast, episode 148. I'm your host, Brandon. I have got the regular crew with me. I'm not going to introduce them tonight because I'm sick of doing that. Another reason is because we've got a uh, special guest tonight, a longtime internet pal of ours, an author, Sean Fury, who has a new book out. Uh, hi, Sean. How are you? Hello, people and gang. It's great to be here. Yeah, well, thank you for joining Wait, us. This is... I, I can see, you know, I saw a picture of him on the Google Hangouts there. Yep. It looks like Rolling Stone founder Jan Wenner. Are we sure this is... Jan Wenner? Um, that's quite the downturn from a girl in a bar a few years ago thought I was John Krasinski from The Office. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's worse nice. people to be compared to. Oh, you should have gone with it. Yeah, yeah you should have gone with it. Get your, get your dick wet out there at NYC. <laughs> <laughs> I was with my cousin and his single friend, and I told the girl, I was like, no, no, I'm not him. And they were very, very upset with him for not going with it. Hell yeah, that would be too. Yeah. <laughs> so, Sean, you're on the uh, the circuit, as they call it, I believe. Uh, when you have a new book come out, you have to go to all the, the big stops. I think you were on... Uh, uh, we talked about it earlier. I think you were on The View earlier, and then that show with Hopefully. the di- guys wearing the scrubs, and then now your third stop is here, which makes a lot of sense, yep. considering yeah. our importance. The, doc- the doctors was a lot of fun. They they diagnosed some of my problems and, and spoke about the book. But, but yeah, I was on with New Mexico Radio this morning, so that that was exciting. Oh, boy. I didn't know New Mexico had books. <laughs> I, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> Well, good for New Mexico. Albuquerque's really coming into its own this year. Yeah. Well, we hope yeah. to. Uh, we'll go easy on you. For sure. When you're when you're an author, you really have to. You have to go through the sport of podcasts to get to popularity. It's the most important yeah. thing. Well, and my and my people told me not to do this, but I was like, <laughs> I'm my own person, and I'm going to do it. Well, Winter, if you think that we're going to take it easy on you, you got another thing coming. Just because you're from Minnesota, just because we like you on the Twitter, doesn't mean you're going to get a free pass today. We're going to hold your feet to the fire no. to hold you accountable. You have to. I, I would expect nothing less. We had true. Franzen on last week, and he was in fucking tears. Hung up almost immediately. So yeah. yep. <laughs> I think we've got a track record of uh, of being hard hitters. So. And like the one thing... 
<laughs> the one thing we know about Jonathan Franzen is that he loves podcasts. <laughs> yeah, he's really into new media, I think, yeah. in general. Open-minded. <laughs> is his thing. Very open-minded. Uh, okay, so, so Sean, do you want to give us a quick, uh, a quick overview of the book? No. No, good. <laughs> Fair. Um, yeah, no, definitely. John uh, is so tired of this. <laughs> no. Back to New Mexico, and you're just like, forget it. Yeah, no, that's no, not about this book. No, it's not. Hola, que amigo? No, Sean, we speak English <laughs> no, in New Mexico. Jesus. You don't have to, to do that. <laughs> okay. No, it's, it's called uh, Rise and Fire, the origins, science, and evolution of the jump shot and how it transformed basketball forever. And there was one guy online I've already seen who was complaining about the length of the subtitle, but whatever. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's basically... Like I get that a lot. Yeah, it's a history of the jump shot and how it basically changed basketball from the time it came into the game starting in the 1930s up to today with the dominance of the three-pointer. And in between are 298 great pages of a lot of basketball history. A lot of it's chronological, but then there's kind of little detours here and there with you know some of the great shooters in the game's history, so... Kind of about the jump shot, but I was also able to write a lot about just basketball history. So the jump shot came around in the 30s? Is that what you said? Yeah, that's kind of when the there were a few scattered stories here and there in the 1920s, but it was really the 30s when the players were kind of given credit for being the first one started shooting it, and they were scattered across the country. Nobody really knew about the other players that were doing this kind of remarkable shot for its time. Um, so starting in the mid-30s, really, is when you get some of these guys, especially at the college level, who were putting up really high scoring numbers using this. They would shoot with two hands at the time, but this jump shot that kind of set scoring records and kind of changed basketball starting then. And then into the 40s and 50s, there was still a lot of resistance to it, but obviously gradually it got accepted into the game. Yeah, that was that was something you mentioned in the book that I had not really thought of before, but it took... 40 years of basketball, four decades of basketball, before anybody was like, you know, yeah. I'm kind of shorter than everybody else. What if I jumped into the air before I shot the ball? Yeah. Effectively, I would become taller and therefore able to shoot over people. And for 30 years afterwards, people are like, no, that's yeah. ridiculous. Hippies. So yeah, now, newfangled I, crap out of here. I picture people in the 1930s still shooting underhand, granny style. So were they like jumping in the air, shooting underhand? Because that seems really weird. <laughs> like a David Lee Roth can't be called. No, they like the early jump shooters. They would shoot with two hands, which you know the set shooters did, but they'd push it from their chest. So the early jump shooters were they would hold it kind of high over their head, which also to John's point, gave him a lot more height and made it impossible, really, for these defenders who, for some reason, did not jump. Um, it made it very difficult <laughs> to block. But, yeah, for, it was still you know, the set shot from the chest. How did we win the war? That's a, it's a, it's a miracle. They didn't develop weapons, but not the jump shot. That was a quote that Sean unearthed from some coach that said, well, this new this newfangled jump shot is impossible to defend. Like, <laughs> this guy comes running down the floor and jumps in the air, and you're like, I can't think of a thing we could do. 
<laughs> He's <laughs> jumping. There's nothing I can do. Yeah, but I have to stay down here because. What's crazy about that? That quote, I think, I think if I'm remembering right, that was from 1954, and it was a very famous <laughs> coach, Joe Lapchick, who became a Hall of Famer. And that was his point: was, you know, what do we do with this crazy shot? That by that time had you know kind of been around for 20 years. It was only in the 50s when it really started. Basketball really started increasing scoring because of it, and that's when you had a lot of writers. Um, I write about Jimmy Breslin in the book. He was a young sports writer at the time. He wrote this column saying the jump shot had ruined basketball forever um, because there was no longer the give and go in the game. So even back then, you had you know people you know kind of grouching about everything, but they were just kind of stunned by this development. And to us, it seems absurd and like how could you not realize it? But it really was this shocking thing at the time. Were they maybe not very good at it in general at the beginning? Sort of like the the way the three pointer took a little bit while to, to yeah. catch on, just because like, boy, this is not fun to watch these dudes clank these jump underhand granny style <laughs> jump shots over guys who are just standing there watching and not jumping. It does seem a little that's, weird mentally. Yeah, no, that's actually a very good point. Like the early Joel Folks, an early NBA star and a, a great scorer of the time. But his shooting percentage was in the low 30s. Um, these early Jesus. shooters, they were, you know, not shooting good percentage. They also shot just an absurd number of shots. You know, he, he shot 56 times when he scored 63 points. Um, <laughs> so those jump shooters also, because they had the skill that was ahead of their time, they were allowed to shoot, you know, 30, 40, 50 times a game. But their percentages, they definitely were not good. And that's a great point compared to the three-pointer when that first came into the NBA and how the percentages you know, over the past 30 years have just increased. I'm Except for Kobe this year. Sorry, I just wanted to <laughs> do a Kobe cheap shot to Sean there. Sorry about that. Oh, <laughs> Is your author photo on the back flap a picture of you humping a Kobe Bryant fathead? Sitting <laughs> <laughs> outside on our fire escape looking longingly at a, a picture of Kobe, but... It's pretty good. It's pretty good. All, all authors are wearing a turtleneck. You got a turtleneck? No, it's too hot for that. It, it was like in the middle of the summer, so it's it's just a nice smart shirt, I'd call it. Oh, good, ah. good smart shirts. I'm confused at the history of basketball, the um, the pacing, because you, you hear about these games that used to be like twelve to eight, uh, and then you also hear about these games like. Pete Maravich or some of the guys you're talking about now shot like 75 times a game. Like, was that a linear thing where way, way, way back in the day there was no pace and then all of a sudden like defense was optional or did it kind of come in like fits and spurts in terms of the pace of play? Yeah, I'd say it would be more fits and spurts. Uh, I had this one, this piece I wrote a few weeks ago and the first 10 years of the NCAA championship game, the average score was something like 49 to 39. And then the 10 years after that, it was like 74 to 68. And the pace, you know, just increased. But also, the, you know, the jump shot played a big part in that. And then you mentioned Maravich and those guys. And I write about that era when it was these absurd scoring numbers. And I talked to a lot of guys who said, you had these high scores, but you also had coaches who really were trying to control the game. But they kind of had these outliers who could go just off by themselves so it was kind of a mix of low pace obviously no shot clock but then you just had outrageous scoring numbers from these guys who were great shooters or at least shot it a lot (laughs) 
And then today's Big Ten conference came into being, and the 49-39 to game returned. I was going to yeah, say that. sounds familiar. But yeah, I was talking, one chapter's on these two guys named uh, Jimmy Rail and Indiana Star in the 60s, and Rick Mount um, at Purdue in the late 60s. And Purdue, the year they went to the Final Four, averaged something like 95 a game. You know, obviously, pre-three-pointer, pre-shot clock. But, it, you know, very limited defense. And just also, Mount and Rail both talked about how coaches just let them, you know, they let their teams, those specific teams, loose. And today you just, I mean, that's impossible to imagine those types of numbers. Yeah, there, there was an era, and you wrote about it a lot in your book, in about the 70s, where pretty much all of college basketball was you ran the ball down the floor as fast as you could, somebody whipped a behind-the-back pass for no good reason, and then yeah. there was a 24-foot jump shot. Yeah, and I I don't really know why that why coaches were okay with it at that time, and gradually, I, I didn't really get into that, and I don't know if it's, as TV became more popular, maybe coaches wanted more control from you know, not that everyone could see their teams, but there was definitely a change there. And by the early 80s, I think you saw it. I mean, you didn't really see those types of scores anymore. And then it just it's kind of continued. You know, you'll get a rarity. Even Steph Curry in college, he was kind of one of those fun, high-scoring type players. But now it'll be someone from a, a school you've never heard of that does nothing in the tournament. Where back in the day, it was team, it was players on great teams. Yeah, it was like... It's like now you got a guy like Steph Curry at Davidson who just is letting fly because they have no other good options. Somehow yeah. every team in the country had one of those guys for 15 straight years. Yeah, and uh, again, I I don't really know why it... You think with a three-pointer, you'd even have more of it, but the college game in particular just kind of gotten so clogged up. And It is fun talking. You know, obviously old players, they always like to complain about the new game, but it's, in that respect, I think they had something to complain about where... You know, why don't coaches sometimes just give the player a little bit more freedom, provided it is obviously helping the team win. So you did a lot of interviews and travel for, for writing the book, is that right? Yeah, correct. I yeah, I would say I would say it was verging on a ridiculous number of interviews and amount of travel, Sean. I got to the end and started reading through the bibliography is like half of the book. <laughs> Are you saying ridiculous in a good way or a bad way, John? In a good way. It's okay. meticulously, outrageously researched. There's like a, a lilt in your voice there that I, I like to look into that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I just feel bad because you've clearly poured your poured your life and your soul and your blood into this book, and I, I just had a book come out that was a book of soccer trivia for fourth graders that I wrote in a month. So I don't <laughs> feel good about myself right now, and any. <laughs> If anything, I, I I feel bad about myself and I'm lashing out. I don't want I don't want that to happen. But no, yeah, I the I traveled to I think it was thirteen or fourteen states, um, and I was fortunate. I was I just started working freelance at the time, so it gave me the opportunity to really work on this book and do a lot of traveling for it and a ton of interviews. Um, like I said, I think it was six, close to seventy. Um, and some of those were multiple times, so. That, that was kind of the most fun was the research, digging through old newspapers, finding old clips. But the danger in that is that first you can kind of disappear down that hole and all of a sudden, you know, newspapers were so bizarre in like the 1930s and you just start reading these weird stories for two hours. Um, so that was a danger. And then also, even with all the research I did, I didn't want it to overwhelm the book. And 
I think sometimes maybe it bordered on that, so I did cut some stuff, and hopefully, you know, it still reads smoothly with a lot of research, but hopefully it doesn't overwhelm readers. No, I, it certainly reads smoothly, and it, I think it's better off for the amount of research you did. Just because Why didn't you, you know, what I do is just make up quotes and <laughs> things that people say. Same um, here. It's so much easier. It just seems easier to put words into other people's mouths. Especially when Especially they're old. For humorous effect. It they really might helps. not remember if they said it or not. Yeah, I mean, who would have known if some guy in the 1930s you know, really said this, this dang jump shot is going to change the game. But um, Look at the getaway sticks on that cage that's you know, <laughs> yeah. That's so easy. I just I don't understand why you went through so much work. If you're gonna do like it's a, probably a better product. If you're gonna well, do like yeah, a reissue, you can about, use that. I did write about cagers as well, so that was kind of a fun little detour there that I I had in the book. But I learned I like something cage. about the cager area era, which was part of the reason they had a cage was back in that day, whoever got to the ball in the crowd first got the ball, which is <laughs> oh god. <laughs> Hey, that's Clarence's idea for how it's to fix the... It's an innovation the... that we have kicked around on the Sword of yes. Podcast about being able to go in the crowd. <laughs> I thought Clarence was trolling us. He's actually a historian of the game. Yeah. Yeah, you have Fog Allen and then Clarence is kind of these great you know, basketball historians. Two pillars. I prefer scholar to, to historian. Oh, yeah, that does make more sense. regal. But no, yeah, that was, that... The, that was definitely an absurdity and. And the crowds obviously were, you know, very um, outspoken and eager to be physical with the players. That's a nice way to put it. Them. Yeah. So even <laughs> when, they, when they did put up these nets slash cages, there were stories about you know players would get burned with cigarettes as they went up against it. So it, it was definitely, a, I mean, it's an understatement to say it was a different era. It was, it was a completely different sport. Ah, the and good old days, putting cigarettes not, out on athletes. Right away, and we shouldn't bring this time back. <laughs> Think about the excitement if you could go to an NBA game, and if you sit in the first six rows, you might be able to punch a player. Sean, also, how, how much of the of the interview process was you just nodding politely when they talked about like things were better back then and all that? Was that a, was that a, a component of talking to some of these fogies? Not, not too much, really. You know, I, I think about it. Like I said, a lot of. With Ray Allen Mount, they, you know, they talked about, we were specifically talking about Big Ten basketball at that time, and I was eagerly agreeing with, you know, their dissection of the conference. Um, otherwise, it was more, you know, they would talk about their time, but most of the guys I talked to didn't really, you know, there'd be the occasional, they, you know, they, kids these days don't do this fundamental, but a lot of them were very complimentary towards some of the great, you know, Durant and Curry, obviously, were the, what could you say bad about them? Those are the two names that came up a lot with the old-timers. But most of them were happy to talk about you know their time, and that's what I was there to talk to them about. So, I if it would start steering in that direction, I, a few times I you know, I would try to kind of guide them back to the olden days. <laughs> would did any of the old timers you talked to agree with me that Bo Ryan is responsible for everything that's wrong with college basketball today and America <laughs> and America? But let's start with college basketball. <laughs> um. No, I, I don't think Bo's name actually came up. I think uh, right. Mount in particular was very outspoken against some of the, the coaches in general, but I don't think he got into specific coaches. Mm, that's a shame. Yeah, it is. 
Might be a good follow-up. I, I just lost some respect for Rick Mount that he didn't say that Bo Ryan was the worst person in America. Well, he he was actually really fun to talk to because he was outspoken, though, about the local high school team in Lebanon, Indiana, and how terrible they were at shooting free throws. Um, so it was, <laughs> it was fun to... <laughs> he wasn't afraid to rant, but... Um, yeah, Bo Ryan avoided the, the hit list. <laughs> I love that Rick Mount, one of the greatest shooters in basketball history and well-known as such, is still complaining that the kids today can't make their free throws in the local high school team. That's well, just, it, and actually, he said that. I went back and I actually looked up the team stats for the year he was talking about, and they were, like, I mean, really bad for, you know, varsity high school team. It was in, like, I think it was in the 50s, their percentage. Because when I... When I read that, I was kind of like, oh, yeah, but, you know, they were terrible. He should have said that. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad to know there's a little bit of Ordenville and Rickmont. Oh, yeah. If we're going to talk small towns, we should do Stu's quiz right now. Is it about Janesville? Oh, okay. It is yeah. about Janesville. Hold on here. Let me pull up my, my Google. I, I have a Google Doc Stu, here about this. Where I got it. I got Stu has okay. prepared a four-question a four quiz about Janesville, Minnesota, which is where Sean's from. It is about Minnesota, Janesville, Minnesota, too, right? Not Janesville, Wisconsin, which everyone... No, no, but, God, no. Not, I'm not an asshole. I'm Come not, on. I trust you, but... Okay, here we go. Question one. Money from what philanthropist helped build the Janesville Library? Carnegie. Very good, Andrew Carnegie. And it's a sterling example of neoclassical architecture, you dicks. So get, check out the Janesville I was just going to say that. My, my I grew up a half block from the library and obviously spent a lot of time there. And, and the, well, this might be a trivia question, so I won't say anything, but I might return to that in a second. Continue. Feel free. Feel free. Um, question two. Janesville shares a main street with which Waseca County Road? Highway 14. U.S. 14 intersects with Highway 3, County Road 3. So yes, I guess we'll we'll, we'll count that one. And it's actually it's like old Highway 14. I, I think they might call it now because it goes around town four lanes. Damn, Stu, you just got well actually in the middle of your own trip. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Cold blooded. Question three: What is tonight's special at the Doghouse Bar and Grill? <laughs> <laughs> what the hell is the Doghouse Bar and Grill? That I don't know. I looked it up. It's on Facebook. Um, I, I, I can give you the address if you want to. But it must be next to Old Whiskey's Meat Market. It's it's the bar that every small town has, where it's been like ten different bars in the last three years or so. Right. Yeah, that might. That, it's either that or the Purple Goose. I can't remember which one. Yeah, the Purple Goose is. I think that's still open. I would say the special would be Burger and Fries, but I don't know. Uh, chicken um, bread steak. We'll give, we'll give you a half and half. It's actually a Hawaiian grilled chicken sandwich Oof. with a choice of fries or tater tots for $7.50, which is a good deal, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Yeah, what makes a grilled chicken sandwich no, Hawaiian? Yeah, I assume there's probably some pineapple on it, which I don't go with. But anyway. <laughs> Not sure I support that. I question four, the final question. Who is the golf pro at Janesville's nine-hole golf course, which is also the only reversible nine-holer in southern Minnesota? Oh my gosh! This is other than Rand's mom. Jesus Christ! Lives in North Dakota, you dick. That is brutal. Just a terrible. I can't think of it. I know the guy. I speak to him every time I go play golf there when I'm home. But I unfortunately have failed this. That's uh, okay. His name is His name is Scott Allen, and he's Scott on the uh, sure. city's uh, website. So that is Scott. the uh, four question Janesville 
quiz. Question number five. No oh boy. Here we go. Would you say it made you a better writer or made it more challenging growing up with all of the animal sodomy? <laughs> well, it's animal sodomy. In, was that a water all around. joke or was that a... Yeah, that'd be more like an Elysian type. <laughs> that's, that's not changed, but that's definitely Elysian. You're almost cities. Um, oh yeah, Alma City is notorious for that. I think yeah, we're, not even incorpor- we're only incorporated for the animal sodomy. I think. I think I'd have to say neither, nor either better nor worse. I've got to ask Clarence, what could you possibly have against Janesville, Minnesota? Nothing. Like- I just I, nothing at any town, any small town in southern Minnesota. I'm throwing shade. It don't. matter. <laughs> anyhow, for one second to the, the Carnegie Library. Um, it is mm-hmm. now home to the famous Janesville Doll in the Window, which for decades haunted Highway Creepy as fuck. Yeah. It's now in the in the library looking out the window. Not quite as creepy now, but What is it? Can you explain it to me? It's a very if you if you Google it on the Google machine, um, it'll come up the Janesville Doll in the Window. It was this house that was actually two houses down from ours and years ago, in the fifties or sixties this man who lived there put this doll up in a window in the attic and it overlooked Highway 14. And Highway 14 was very, very busy. And people never knew what the story was, why this creepy doll was hanging there. And people would... There are stories about that. A girl was murdered there and the town shunned the parents or something. There was all these kinds of tales. And the man who lived in the house died uh, four years ago. And the reason the doll is in the window is supposedly going to be revealed from the town vault that was placed there in 1976, but it won't be open for 200 years. So, oh yeah, there's the doll. The, the yeah, thing it's I fucking creepy. Can, can you imagine being the person after that guy died that had to go up to get the doll in the window, not knowing what else he would find at the top of those stairs? Well, and the the gentleman who was a you know goes without saying was a very nice guy. Um, but he also, he was kind of a borderline hoarder, had a, just a ton of stuff in the house. And during the auction, um, my dad was like, I can go get the doll and like probably buy it. And I was just like, no, please, we don't, we don't want that hanging in the theory household, but. <laughs> so I want this haunted, creepy doll that will come back to infest all our nightmares in our household. I yeah. Googled Janesville doll in the window and the first search item that came up was from a tvfury.wordpress.com yeah. website. Are you familiar yeah, with that? Yeah, I am. In the, well, I mean, I guess it's a good thing, but that little piece that I wrote in like a half hour after Ward went, the owner died, that's, that literally got like hundreds of thousands um, of views for us. It just randomly went berserk on Facebook for like a two-week period. And that's probably the thing that, of everything I've written, including this book, that will be read the most in my lifetime. So, just that. I don't know if that's depressing or not, but yeah, people love the doll. This yeah. is a good time to ask: Will TV Fury ever make a comeback? I, I doubt it. I mean, I think I'll maybe write on there here and there, but Harry, with all his boatload of children. Um, Simply didn't have the time anymore to do it as you gentlemen with children probably understand. Um, 
So I think it might just be Fury at this point, which doesn't sound doesn't have quite the ring. So we'll have to see. Still a pretty good ring. It's a shame. I love that blood. Hey, uh, yeah. Clarence, do you have any other trivia questions, or was it just that one? I'd like to revisit the animal sodomy <laughs> part of Geneville. He he wiggled out of that answer, didn't he? Well, other places uh, have it worse than we do. Uh, right? We just have a regular amount of animal sodomy. The other ones have what? worse. I think I said I, I didn't know any in Janesville. Hmm. Um, so hmm. I, I can't really say how it... I can't really say how it would have affected me as a writer. It's just part of you. All right, I want to... Before we get on to your usual nonsense, I do want to talk a little bit of hoops with John because obviously he's a hoops junkie given that he just wrote a book about hoops. So... Here's my question, and this is something you talk about in the book, but I, I, I want you to talk about it here where Clarence has a chance to yell at you. Has the three-pointer ruined basketball? Who's going to yell at me, Clarence or Brandon? I, I don't, you know, depends on what your answer is. Um, no, I, I mean, I, I no, not at all. I don't think it's ruined it. I think just from a viewer's perspective, sometimes I get a, a little bored just watching it when it's if there's say 35 to 40 attempts in a game it, it gets a bit monotonous to me but i think it's you know, the last 10 years the game's pace you know has become very exciting you compare it to the mid-90s nightmares that we had even the early 2000s with you know i was enjoying the lakers winning but there was just there's a lot of ugly games there so you know, a lot of today it's still a great thing to watch most of the time just for me i i, I do miss some of the old great post players um, just watching, I was, you, know, you could have a great shooter, you could have a great post player, you could have a great mid-range guy. A bit more variety on the teams maybe back in the day where today it's, I mean, you kind of just have four great shooters out there, you know, one guy penetrate, kick it out to him, and that's a, a great way to play and a great way to win. But just from me as a viewer, it sometimes gets a little boring. It does seem to go in really, really dramatic swings too. I mean, you talk about the 90s, that was very recent, and it was an it was almost an unrecognizable game. And those Pat Riley teams in the '90s were just about they just about killed the NBA. True, so true. But there's oh. some good post players too. And right now, I mean, how many are there even that are like legitimate three keys to the to the offense on their team? It's it's hardly any. I mean, we dealt with Al Jefferson for a long time. Was probably not a great example because yeah. he was good in the post, but just wasn't a good player overall. So I think there must Jefferson and a few others of his ilk maybe sort of soured certain teams and coaches on on having a guy a, a post player be your sort of dominant presence. But yeah, it's totally it, swung dramatically. Yeah, you, know, you talk about the old fogies, you know, talking about how bad the new game is. Sometimes just the annoying to me is people saying like the older players they could never do anything today, just because it's so hard to compare eras and. I unfortunately once got drawn into this argument on a Lakers message board. Um, about whether a, well, that's whether kind of your own Akeem, fault there. No, it was. <laughs> but whether Akeem Olajuwon would be a great player in today's game, and this person was saying, no, the game has changed so much. and I, I just I, I can't agree with that. I mean, no, why, he would have been awesome. Why would DeMarcus Cousins be so good, but Akeem you know, wouldn't be? That, that didn't make any sense to me. So Akeem's a perfect example of an exception because the thing that I was just reading an article about how um, – physically weak he was in terms of like David Robinson was this gigantic person next to him and Akeem was just really lanky but he just worked him 
in the post just because of all of his moves. So he seems like in particular a guy who'd be able to span eras just because of his yeah. footwork and moves and creativity and all that sort of stuff. Like you don't necessarily need to be huge because there were guys like that back in his day too. And he, uh, well, but, and obviously uh, another, again, I'm, I'm sorry, a Lakers message for it. Um, Jesus time Christ. <laughs> what do you I, t- I, spent, I spent so much time there, guys. <laughs> Stu, Stu, I want you to, Stu, I want you to go look at how many tweets you have and then come back and tell me that Sean's wasting his time. But <laughs> uh, no, they're talking about Kareem and, you know, how he would play today. And, you know, it would be different because, obviously, the way players can be double-teamed today is totally different. <laughs> but I still feel Kareem, if you threw it to him from 10 to 12 feet, could shoot the hook over anyone. So he might not put up as big a numbers, but it seems like he would still be damn effective. Why is that not a shot anymore? What happened? That's kind of a fun He was the only thing. one who could do it. That's why. Did you see Kobe try to do it in the All-Star game and he shot an air ball? Okay. <laughs> one, I was... Sorry, I'm I, still... Yeah, hold on. Give me a few more seconds. <laughs> That's what okay, I'm, I'm done. You know, the, the Kobe thing. But that was a terrible shot in the All-Star game. But if you go to YouTube, there are plenty of Kobe hook shots from his prime that you can dial up. When he wasn't crippled, when he wasn't old, mm-hmm. he, he could shoot the hook. Yeah, hold on. I'm going to write up. I'm going to pull up my notepad. Things to never do ever. <laughs> I'll get to that. I'm not sure I realized how much Brandon hated Kobe Bryant until right now. Magic <laughs> Johnson had he developed his hook in you know 80, starting in '87, and but his wasn't really the the sky hook, but he had a great hook shot, and it really kind of helped his career the last three or four years because it became his go-to shot. Yeah, I hey on the record, I don't hate Kobe Bryant. I think it's just mild. I think it's just surreal these past few years. Um, I like anybody else love being right, especially about like things I predicted. So I think that's why people are getting such a kick out of this because they're like Kobe is not going to go down gracefully and like uh, yeah. reinvent himself like Vince Carter did of all of a sudden being like a spot up guy. Um, so that's the sort of thing. But no, I don't. I don't hate Kobe. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't argue with that. All right, so on the, on the subject of the three-pointer, Sean, again, something you talk about in the book, but would you move the three-point line? Would you take it out? Would you take out the corner three? Would you change anything three-point related? Yeah, I, went, I think in the book I wrote about how you know, what would happen if you did move it back, and I don't know if that would really affect it because I feel like a big thing that teams do, it's not necessarily... I mean, it is how many you make, but people get mad at the Timberwolves just for the fact that they just don't shoot hardly any, it seems like. So mm-hmm. just because it was further out, I think the teams that use it would still be shooting it because it's would still open up the offense like it does today. I think somebody on Grantland like last year had uh, kind of an idea of each home team could use whatever rules they wanted. So if the Grizzlies, say were at home and didn't want to use the three-pointer, they wouldn't have to. I thought that was kind of a, a fun idea that <laughs> go absolutely nowhere. But yeah. So Sam Mitchell would just count every basket as half a point and free throws as nothing at all? Yeah, that sounds like another Clarence idea, but again, I, I find myself agreeing with Clarence-like ideas more and more, and, and I think that is a good one. Goddamn right. I wish would I you could remember some of Clarence's outlaw, ideas. Oh, here we go. Would you outlaw slam dunks? Me? No. Oh, shit. Well, it was a good run. It was great for having you on. I really appreciate you <laughs> taking the time. Clarence, would you all lost slam dunks? Fucking right I would. 
So what would you do if you were you you would just they wouldn't be able to physically touch the rim? Is that what, how you would how you'd police this mm. thing? That's why I would, twenty years. I would just if you slam dunked, then you're out of the league. One strike and you're out. Rule. Yeah, no, that's zero tolerance. It's well, like, of course, yeah. I mean, this isn't babe, this isn't uh, daycare. No, I, I mean, I only wish right now that we could do this podcast in 1968, so Clarence could be the guy who's still complaining about the jump shot. <laughs> <laughs> Forward pass in football. Yeah, yeah fucking bullshit. damn jump shot ruined basketball. Forward uh, pass ruined football. Back in my day. Yeah, to run the ball forward to advance it. To gracefully bring it back to my book, it, it was there was a quote from Bob Cousy in the '60s saying how the jump shot was the worst thing that happened in basketball the last ten years. So, it, that was one of the fun things that the research was seeing how actually the jump shot kind of was the dunk of its day, if you will, where people thought it was terrible for the game. And Bob Cousy was tiny, wasn't he? he? Didn't realize that the jump shot is what is what would possibly keep guys like him. Employed in basketball, but that's that's a great point. Very odd. When the when it first started showing up, that was one thing that the people who liked it, whether it was reporters or coaches, it said it was going to save the little man in basketball because the quote I used from Fog Allen in the book was he called them tall freaks and glandular goons, um, <laughs> the uh-huh. tall players who had no skills, but just because they were tall, could just dominate underneath and. The little man with the jump shot could, you know, still have a place in basketball. I agree. Jeez, Bob. I know, Bob. But Bob can shoot. The best part of Bob Cousy saying that, and again, this is something you can read all about in Sean's book, is that he was pretty much sitting right next to Bill Sharman, who all Bill Sharman could do was take jump shots. Bill, and you don't get into his book too, so you know he wasn't totally. Charmin wrote this very famous book on shooting, and Kuzi had the introduction, so you know, he wasn't totally against it. But as he retired, he kind of I found this rant that he went on the Associated Press, and it focused on the jump shot. Is it because they didn't like the way they when they were playing, it wasn't as fun, or was it harder to watch? I'm I'm trying to still just understand why you wouldn't want the jump shot because watching obviously as um, visually, it's a lot easier because there's more spacing and all that sort of stuff. But so, were yeah, these think, players that were upset, or fans, or both? It was it was kind of like the old again the old school coaches, some of the media, and then it was also players, and they all had kind of different reasons. I think a lot of the coaches, it was just the old. We've always done it this way. Sure. That's how it has to be done, uh, which you always find. And then a lot of it though was concern about individuals becoming dominant and. It would, would take away from the team aspect where you had 10 passes of possession, you know, those beads that you see in those old clips. But now one player could just take it, you know, take a dribble and literally rise up over the defenders who were stationed on the court. Yeah. And they worried that it would kind of be, you know, give so much power to the individuals that was going to rob basketball of the give and go and, you know, plays like that, which obviously proved unfounded. And then also play at Kuzi's. You know, what he disliked about it was that when you went in the air, you can make a lot more mistakes, um, which seems like kind of an odd complaint, but that was his objection. I don't know why that would make it the worst thing to happen in 10 years, but he was they all really, kind of had to, really scrapping for reasons. <laughs> I think he was just, I think that reporter just caught him on a bad day, but yeah. fortunately for me, I found that cool. <laughs> These kids today, while they're jumping in the air, they're going to hurt themselves. That goddamn me first generation. 
this the silent generation. <laughs> yeah, all those. Huh. <sighs> I like complaining about old people. Yeah, one of my favorite things. All right, so Sean, you're obviously a hoops junkie. We we actually got you on the back end of you playing hoops tonight, playing old man basketball. Yeah. So, are you pretty much the guy who's always watching the NBA, the NCAA? What's your opinion of the current state of the game? Uh, I definitely watch a lot more NBA than than college. Um, but I mean, I do like today earlier this afternoon um, as I was home, and I get like for some reason like fifteen packs. 10 or Pac-12, whatever it is now, networks. And I just watched some bizarre game from, like, six weeks ago. Um, yeah, I, I watched more NBA than college, and I, I still like the – I think I'm a lot – like a lot of people where the college game just doesn't seem as – the quality's not as good as it was back in my day. Sorry. Um, mm-hmm. of the I 80s. think that's, that's the case where the back in my day argument is absolutely 100% correct. It's though. true. It, it is, is just, sometimes it true. It's so tough to watch. Yeah, so I mean, obviously March Madness, you know, I enjoy that, but just the day to day. But at the same time, I, you know, I live pretty close to Columbia, so I go down to the Columbia games to watch Ivy League basketball. And my friend coaches a high school team in the, the Washington High School right here, so I go to his game. So, yeah, I, I definitely still watch a lot of non NBA. But do you think that the main problem with uh, college hoops is just because the talent is? is gone nowadays or do you see other very glaring obvious problems that seem to be fixable it seems like that's kind of the big thing right i mean you just think about those in class a few days ago had a game from 92 and like that duke team all those players have been there three four years forever Mm -hmm. and so obviously it helps with the teamwork and cohesiveness but also, they were just you know very good players who stayed there, and that's just impossible to do now. So I think that's kind of the big thing. Where if you have a senior that's there, there are four years, people kind of look at him now like more like, "What's wrong with you? Why haven't you left?" Then you know this guy's a great you know a senior player. So I feel like the talent drain is kind of the main thing, but I think it does kind of go back to that idea of the coaches also having so much control. Yes. Yep. Where they don't let you know. Not that a player should be shooting 50 times a game, one person, but there's just very few teams that have that offensive freedom, and, and that really you know, hurts the flow of the game. And I could be wrong, but it just seems like there's so little um, transition uh, offense in yeah. college. It's just all half-court sets, and it's impossible with zones. And these, you know, obviously college kids can't shoot as well as the pro, kit, pro guys do from the outside, so it's just such this clogged, slow end of the shot. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A clock launch something up. I don't understand why they don't run as much as they do. There must be some reason. You know, some of it I know that people complain about the charge in college hoops mm. is so much more drastic of a, of a play that's used so much more. That might stop some of that. I don't really know for sure, but yeah, it is night and day. The other day I was looking up for some reason the 1988 Oklahoma team, and they averaged, I think it was over 100. I want to say it was 101, and they got beat by Kansas in the final, but that was a team, Billy Tubbs was the coach that, you know, he just allowed these players like ex-Timberwolf great Stacey King you just don't see any teams like that anymore you see these coaches screaming at guys to slow it down and call the play and all that sort um and it, obviously it works success wise i mean some of these coaches obviously can um can well, it's just the ball boys but uh it's just hard to watch it's, it's a bummer too because i love hoops and i love college but ugh. yeah no, I agree, and I, and I still watch a ton of it. And I think in person, when you're at that, it seems like for some reason, for me anyway, a 58-54 game is somehow still exciting. It maybe it shouldn't be, but just being in the envi- the college environment somehow helps with it. But watching it on TV would definitely be a struggle. The one exception might be Gopher basketball nowadays. There's like 11 people at every game. <laughs> There's not a huge, but I went to a Michigan State game um, two years ago at Michigan State, uh, and it was great. I totally forgot how fun college basketball can be when you've got a really good crowd and good teams. Yeah. It's a blast. No, I went two weeks ago to, again, Columbia, and they're, they only seat like 2,500, 3,000, but it's you know an intimate court. It's, it was packed, and it was, it was a fun game, even though it wasn't the greatest display of talent there. Word. Word is right. All right. Is straight up question, is Steph Curry the best jump shooter of all time? I I'm gonna say that what I you know say in the book that I, I think it's a for me anyway, it, it's impossible to name just one because the errors are so different. And I think you know, you talk about again whether old players how they're doing today's game, but if Steph Curry played in the nineteen seventies, he wouldn't have the three pointer. And how would that, what kind of player would he have been then? Even in the 80s, he just, he wouldn't have been shooting the number of three-pointers he does now. So it's just so hard to compare eras. And I don't know how you compare someone who never shot three-pointers to the guys who do it so well. And in, the ni- in the 90s, um, like, you know, Anthony Mason would have hit him with like a sock full of quarters if he tried to, <laughs> you know, ever shoot. So. Bruce yeah, Bowen would have heard about his ankle injuries and he'd have broken his ankle every single time they played the Spurs. Charles Oakley just firing a pistol at him from the way every time he pulled up. <laughs> but yeah, so I in five years. I really got uh, to the murder part of that really quickly, that build <laughs> of the jokes. It, it might be impossible you know, in five years to even make that argument that I'm making that, that you can't compare errors. Just because, you know, if you talk about three-point shooting, well, you know, Kerr was the most accurate three-point shooter, but I don't think anyone thought he was the greatest shooter ever. So you know, what kind of stats do you use? You know, the eye test, what do you go by? Um, well, obviously, he's you know, in the discussion, but for me, anyway, I think all you can do is kind of throw a bunch of guys in there and debate it. But for me, I, I can't come up with you know one solid answer. But obviously, I'm not going to disagree with someone if they're arguing for Curry. Cause... 
It's interesting, John, you mentioned this offline, but I think it's a common person to think of when you start thinking about jump shooting and three pointers is Larry Bird, but he's not really anywhere in the conversation in terms of three point shooting whatsoever. I mean, he barely ever shot them. But well, he was still and, and he, sort of a, a catalyst, right, for shooting more. Like, he seemed to be one of the guys that kind of figured it out, even though it was just at a lower scale at the time. Well, again, this is this is something straight out of Sean's book, which is if, if you go back and you look, even after the NBA introduced the three-pointer, most teams were like, yeah, no thanks. We're, we're, we're going to do out of this newfangled nonsense. It almost got canceled like, after the first year, I well, the NBA Finals, there. I think the, one of the years the Lakers won in eighty or eighty-two, they shot. I don't think they made any. Um, even that, you know, the great eighty-three Sixers team, you know, barely. I think they made one or two. Even through the mid-eighties, the eighty-six Celtics with Bird, Ainge, Wedman, those guys, they just they didn't shoot a lot, and it, it really kind of started turning late eighties, early nineties. But yeah, Bird. Um, I'm actually just looking up his stats, and the most he made in the season was ninety. Um, and it, it took until like 1987 to shoot 100 three pointers in a season. We're over yeah, halfway. He shot 100 three pointers in the last week. Yeah, yeah, he did shoot. He was shooting 42 percent, looking like few of those years. So he had you know a really good percentage from there. So, and I think it's safe to say if he would have shot more, that I don't think that percentage would have dropped much from there. So I think he would have used it as effectively as the guys do today. Which, it still brings up a question in my mind that nobody except for Rick Pitino at Providence figured out, you know, if he can shoot this 12 from three-pointers, why don't we have him shoot 35 on the game? Yeah. We'll dominate everyone because they're worth 1.5 times as much as a regular shot. And even so, Bird was like, yeah, forget it. I'm going to back a guy down to 13 feet and shoot a turnaround over him. Yeah, and that you mentioned Pitino and... That was something from my book, the, the 1987 Final Four, where you had Patino, Knight with Indiana, Tarkanian, and Bayheim, um, quite the crew. And Knight, not surprisingly, hated the three. Get out. Of the, he he one of the smallest yeah. upsets of all time, Bobby Knight hated James. <laughs> but, but, he, but he had Steve Alford, who you know really carried him in the finals with a few player. But Bayheim had a quote in the Final Four where, you know, he said, I don't like it. You know, you writers probably like it, but you writers also probably like X-rated movies. <laughs> it's just a bizarre... What an odd... Com- yeah, yeah. They, of course. Jim Beheim is really underrated as one of the biggest a-holes in the history of college sports. What an odd thing to talk shit about. Like, yeah, I do. <laughs> what? Are you shaming me for my yeah. love of three-pointers and X-rated movies? Both are great, and I feel zero shame. <sighs> yeah, the, the, the point being, Patino was the reason Providence, you know, made it to that Final Four was almost solely due to Billy Donovan, Delray Brooks, and the entire team just launching three pointers. Because somehow Rick Patino was the only guy in all of basketball who could do math at that point. <laughs> well. I, I just don't understand why everyone look at, wouldn't look at this and be like, yeah, this is a great idea. Well, I think there's two factors. More of these. I think, number one, um, the math only works out if you're semi-competent at shooting them, right? I mean, yeah. it's if you shoot 11%, it's terrible. And number two, there were some of these seasons, I'm thinking specifically in the NBA, like with some of the bird years, where this was 
just a transition run and gun game where you didn't really necessarily have this half court offense where you needed to create shots like that to open up the game. Like you're just running and you made or missed the layup and then we're sprinting down the other way. So I feel like those are maybe two factors a little bit that made it take longer for it to, but then again, I didn't just write a book about it. So Sean, does that make sense at all? Yeah, yeah perfect sense. I, you know, there's definitely quotes from coaches who said, you know, yeah, I'll let my players shoot it. If, you know, if they can make it some of the time, and because an interesting thing to me was a guy I talked to, Austin Carr, um, who was a great mid-range shooter in the 70s, but he said he, his talent of his career was when the three-pointer came in. And he said he just didn't have the form or you know, the muscle memory to shoot from that range. And so his percentage was terrible. And there are so many guys like that who, if you didn't grow up with it, you weren't spending all your time shooting 20-footers. And, and once it came in, especially the NBA, 23 feet, a lot of them just didn't have the ability you know, it took him a few years to be able be able to make it on a consistent basis. There had to be a lot of guys who would have been really good at it, but they're like, ah, fuck that. I don't want to learn. It's too far away. I'm not used to it, and I'm old. and So there's got to be that component as well. Yeah, and just because the style at the time was, there wasn't really a need for it. Um, when, when he did have a guy who did it, he really stood out. Uh, the one I mentioned in the book is Dale Griffith with Utah. And he made almost all his team's three-pointers one year. And then the next season, he was hurt. And it took to, I think it was the 23rd or 24th game before Utah made a three-pointer um, because Daryl Griffith wasn't on our team. And this was in the mid-'80s. It, you know, it, was, it was, I mean, it was 30 years ago, but it, it wasn't prehistoric. Right. Daryl Griffith out of Louisville. Just want to point that one out. Dr. Duncanstein. Damn right. Wow. Wow. Good history. <laughs> John, do you have any other questions for Sean? Well, I was just sitting here thinking that now it feels unfair to me because the Timberwolves can't make any three-pointers and every other team can. Mm -hmm. So when I'm watching a Timberwolves game and the other team makes a three-pointer, it's like, ah, Timberwolves are going to have to get two baskets to get that back. This is this this feels unfair. It's funny you say that because you might remember this quote, John, too, in the book where when the jump shot first came, they talked about how it was Dick McGuire, another Hall of Famer, who said, we pass it around four or five times, we work screens, we get a guy open and they make it, and the other guy comes down and just jumps out of the building and shoots, and it goes in. You know, it's unfair. So, for the jumper, that's how it kind of started, and now today, you know, with the three-pointer, you get that same feeling with these teams that can't do it. Like, you know, why can't you just make those? But Yeah, I get it. It seems kind of elitist. you got to work harder. It's not fair. I get that. It's weird, so, but I get it. I, I also wanted to ask you, there's there's a whole chapter in the book about guys who coach the three-pointer and coach the shot and coach the jump shot. And you went and visited some of these guys and even had some of them work with you a little bit on your own jump shot. Could any of these guys teach Ricky Rubio to shoot the jumper? Or is uh, he too far gone? They all would love to. Yeah, I actually brought up his name to all of them, and you know, they were all very eager to do it, but Mike Penberth, he's the, the guy who has worked with him. I, a few years ago, he got into this kind of a, a Clarence-esque, again, online uh, Twitter fight um, with Penberth. Penberth and this other guy were going back and forth, you know, talking about different things about the jump shot. And this one guy said he didn't think Penberth would be able to help him, and obviously it seems like he hasn't, but <laughs> at that age, I, you know, I just don't know what... 
it seems like why you know why can't you become this great shooter and you'd be so so good but at this point i don't you know i don't know but at the same time you know just thinking about my lakers brain uh going to magic johnson and he could not make a three-pointer at the first six seven years of his career and then he became a pretty effective three-point shooter at the end so there are guys who have done it and can develop it but i think it's kind of wait like you know, Celtics fans are probably waiting for Rondo to develop one for years, and that never happened. So, so, so you're telling me I don't think I knew this. There is a person out there who has sold his services to Ricky Rubio over a period of several years as a shooting coach. Well, the, like, well, the Timberwolves had Mike Penberthy on staff. Um, again, former Laker Mike Penberthy, um, who was known as you know, a shooter in his day, and then he became a shooting coach. I think he was full-time with the Timberwolves last year, and now this year he's kind of more like a consultant role. But he, that was his, he was working with Rubio, and you know, you, you see stories about there was going to be these improvements. They had you know, worked on this part of their shot. But it's one thing to do it. You, know, you talk about how you have to practice like you'll play, but it's one thing to be able to make them in practice, but you know, translating it into the game has kind of proved impossible. Well, the thing that's odd about him, though, is what – when I heard he was a rookie, he wasn't a very good shooter, obviously, but he's always been a really good free throw shooter. So, like, that should always translate. They say, like, if you start out being a good free throw shooter, you'll be able to yeah. figure the other ones out, especially a three-pointer. And, again, it's just it's it's a mystery because some guy, guys who have that basic form should be able to figure it out at some point. So, I don't know. Yeah. Also, also worth, yeah. worth, worth noting that Penberthy is the third largest city in Australia. Incredible. I was just going to say that. Sorry, just, just, just I feel like we mention that every disrupting week. Disrupting the flow of the entire. Wade's about to fire out a tweet right now. Sorry, Wade. <laughs> uh, can Sean? Can you teach us to shoot a jump shot? Via uh, podcast. I mean, I haven't seen any of your guys' jump shots. Who would you imagine has the best jump shot out of all four of us? Uh, Brandon. Yes. Yeah. I'm pretty good. Well, left-handed. Is that true or not? Am I way off base? Uh, Brandon, did you, did you play basketball growing up? A little bit, yeah. I played in a, a rec league with Michael Rand one time, and we executed a half-court alley-oop, which is still the highlight of my athletic career, even though I've played baseball for 30 years. Were, were you were you the one throwing the pass? Or no, I was out cherry-picking, and he got a rebound, and I did like the finger point up to the hoop like I was going to jump, and I was a long way from him, and for some reason he just launched it toward the hoop, and it was perfect for me to catch and do a layup alley-oop I, in a Burnsville rec league. Think. It was the greatest thing that's ever happened. I picture Clarence like someone challenging him to a game of horse and him walking around like, with a cigarette in his mouth just casually. You know, launching little push jumper and jeans. Don't forget jeans. Of course, yeah, jeans. jeans. Surprisingly, yeah. cowboy so. boots and a beer in my hand. Can you shoot one-handed? <laughs> yes, it's, oh, of course. You have to. Yeah, that's part of the Gary, game. Gary, were you? I know you wrote. <laughs> I, maybe I'm wrong, but I you wrote for the Fargo Forum, correct? Correct. Were you there in '96, and did you cover the NDSU intramural basketball championship? <laughs> Uh, no and, and no. Yes um, and yes. <laughs> yeah, there. Was there. We were all there. You have, Dallas. along with Rubio, you could have a chapter on the worst jump shots in basketball history. And was there one? Oh, there's no doubt. There, okay. I, worst jump shot? 
couldn't dribble with my left hand, which meant I couldn't drive to the left. And once the league found out that I only could move to my right, Scouting report. It was a, I, I lost all my minutes, became <laughs> a bench player. Yeah, it, it was all over for me. So, I, but I, you were probably good with intangibles. I used all the fouls. I didn't leave any fouls on the table. You can't take them with yeah. you. No. You don't, you don't bring those home. Nope. Well, I mean, I can, picture, can I picture Stu maybe also having a good jump shot with that central Minnesota? Uh, I was okay. I, I only played through, like, ninth grade, but I was, you know, just skinny, super skinny, and just I could shoot from long distance, and then if someone put a hand in my face, I cried. Because yeah. I was sad. That's so, Rubio. No. Sure. Exactly. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, John. I, you're like the fourth one I mentioned. I guess I, I just don't. I'm sorry. I don't. I don't know if I picture you having a good jump shot. <laughs> oh man, that's the least hurtful thing anyone's ever said to me. Okay. But he did. You? He got dominated at the line on um, in Ortonville football, according to Michael Rand. So, <laughs> how would Michael Rand know? He doesn't even know where Ortonville is. <laughs> well, he he says a lot of things. Yeah, he's, a, he's, a, he's an angry, hurtful person, and that's yes. why we all hate Tiny, him. Tiny like man says hateful things. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, okay, so but give us like three tips to keep in mind once we're out doing pickup hoops. I mean, I'm sure like shoulders square to the hoop, right? Something like that. But <laughs> uh, the, the coaches always told me, and it kind of makes sense that I started, you know, thinking about. My shot and other shots is your elbow should always be keeping that, you know, kind of in an L shape with your arm. When the elbow kind of goes out to the side, bad, bad things follow. Um, you know, having a nice follow through with the wrist and a snapping through, uh, that always helps. Um, I don't being square to the basket, I don't think it's necessarily as important, and some of the coaches say it's not important at all. So Fuck. Yeah, exactly. So I think the elbow being straight, um, work on that. Work on that from like five feet away, holding that form, and then having a good follow through. And I think you'll be shooting eighty percent pretty soon. Wow! <laughs> Starting with a basketball in your hands is always a good start. Dude, executing a jump shot. You buy a ball. Yep. And having a basketball is step one. <laughs> I'm trying to brainwash my my boys to. To only care about basketball and hate hockey. We'll see how well it goes in Minnesota. It's probably going to be a tough, an uphill battle because I loved hockey I hope growing so. up. So, well, yeah, man, if you, I grew up in southern Minnesota where, where hockey was kind of a foreign sport to us. So, so mm-hmm. odd to me how there's certain, yeah, like areas of Minnesota and cities that just like mm, we don't even know what hockey is. Well, in, in western Minnesota, it was all basketball, and hockey was a sport for the kids who smoked cigarettes behind the metal shop during school. Right, exactly. Hell yeah. The cool kids, the good ones. Yeah. yeah. But that's odd to me. It's... People talk in hushed tones about like the Edgerton basketball team from like 1960 or whatever, but you know, no. as far as Edina hockey, no one gave a shit. There's no. like 14 cities in Minnesota that really give a shit about hockey, and then everything else is kind of depends on yeah. the year, it seems like. And even Wisconsin, I don't even know. They didn't used to have high school hockey, and that's right there. So it's very odd. Now they don't have college hockey, right, John? Is that a good joke, John? Good, good burn. Good thanks. Man. It's burning Mike all of us. Get caught in a trash compactor. Yeah. 
So, Sean, what is your uh, what does the PR circuit look like? Are you just doing? Are you doing as many radio? You know, obviously it'll all be downhill from here, but yeah, the best, the best time of my life has gone now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the book came out yesterday, correct? Yeah, yesterday I got a little little book party event that was fun. Um, yeah, today I had four radio interviews from kind of places scattered across the country. Um, the next week or so, I got a bunch. And then it's kind of doing, I'm actually hoping to write something for our very own Michael Rand. Um, oh, kind nice. of coincide with the book. So I'm hoping to do a kind of little pieces like that, that, that tie into the book and you know, get word of it out that way. And then I'm hoping in the next month or so, maybe to do some events, flash signings, either in Indiana, where you know, I wrote a lot about the people there, and then also you know back in Minnesota, back in the home state. So we'll Outstanding. Waldorf, Pemberton. Well, I think it'd be in Janesville. Either way, either way. JWP. And yeah. you had an excerpt in uh, Sports on Earth, is that right? Yeah, that was the uh, chapter on, or uh, part of the chapter on Larry Bird, the, the man we were talking about, and I, it was kind of a fun chapter, right? Because obviously Bird is known for his all-around game, and that, that is what made him so great. But when you think about just how his jump shot affected his game and, and did set him apart from, from his peers of that time. Um, it was interesting going back again through some of the research and his high school days where the Associated Press in Indiana named like 15 players to their all-state team. And Bird, who averaged 30 points and 20 rebounds, did not make it. Um, and it was because he was from southern Indiana and people just didn't respect southern Indiana basketball players. Yeah. Southern <laughs> Indiana? Why? That's it's Kentucky. Yeah, basically. Finding old stories like that, that, you know, was fun, even with someone who it seems like we know so much about him. Yeah, it's true. And you've had a few other pieces on Sports on Earth, too, right? You've done a few things for those guys? Yeah. I, uh, a friend of mine uh, who I used to actually work with is one of the managing editors there, and I've been he kind of, he kind of felt bad for me because my first three pieces for him were about um, people who had just died. Uh <laughs> Oh, God, you're the Black Widow of Sports Center. Yeah, Daryl Dawkins, Moses Malone, and then when Flip died, he was, you know, he felt bad. He's like, can you now write something about Flip? You're actually um, really good at this. Sorry. Yeah. So, so fortunately, you know, I'm hoping to write some different things about people who are still with us. But I also enjoy, you know, like with the Daryl Dawkins one, I kind of wrote about some of the early people who broke backboards mm-hmm. like Dawkins did. And actually, this was cut from the book, but I put it in the Sports on Earth thing. Um, Chuck Connors, the rifleman, uh, when he played for the Celtics, took a jump shot that shattered a backboard. Um, <laughs> Clarence Swanton, everybody. <laughs> yeah. The hell is a backboard made out of? Yeah, well, it was, it was a, French bread. A, yeah, a janitor who had, had not put it together properly. Always playing the janitor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> The eyes and ears of every institution. <laughs> oh, good. Good. That was very good. Uh, well, that's all I got. John, do you have any other questions for I mean, I know we have other things we can talk about, but specifically for Sean? Yeah, none of it. I, I thought it was an excellent book, and you all should run out to your local bookstore or possibly your local publishing website, such as Amazon.com, and purchase it. Rise and fire. John is... Sean is spelled S H A W N and Fury is spelled Fury. Yes. 
Type so, it into Amazon. Sean, do you want to stick around as we go through a few other topics that we have? Uh, definitely. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to be yelled at more by Clarence. Oh, great. Um, I think Can we you? all do. Um, well, we should first give a quick update uh, for Stu to provide a report from... You did some journalism today. Is that right, Stu? Uh, extremely minor journalism, yes. Ooh, that's the best kind of journalism. Yes. Um, I, I had an invite to go to the uh, Minnesota United Football Club's uh, stadium reveal. That was over at the uh, Minnesota Club over by XL. So on my, I took a late lunch and strolled over there via the uh, St. Paul Skyway system and just kind of showed up and... Uh, there were all the, you know, the big swinging dicks of St. Paul were there. We had Chris Coleman and Bill McGuire and all of Clarence's friends from the St. Paul media were there. And they oh, just yeah. like pre- they previewed the, uh, the, what the new stadium, the uh, soccer stadium will look like over on Midway. Parody. And the, my favorite party. part about all of the drawings is that some of them still showed the Spruce Tree Center. <laughs> <laughs> the world's largest outdoor bathroom, <laughs> as I think it was called on Twitter. <laughs> I still in some of the still in some of the blueprints, which is really I think, all I cared to see. I think I've I've told this. I, I think I've said this on the podcast before, but I once saw a list of the ten ugliest buildings in the world, and the Spruce Tree Center was on there, like number eight. <laughs> It looks like a giant urinal that was made out of Legos by a dumb kid. It was just, <laughs> just the worst. <laughs> oh, wow. So yeah, but no, it was um, it was fun. They had like you know, it was, they had some of the fans there. With, you know, since they're soccer fans, they had scarves and they were loud. And um, you know, I think uh, the uh, goofy ass uh, Channel Five reporter who thought the Minneapolis mayor was uh a gang member was there asking qu- the tough questions about taxpayer money and stuff. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it looks nice. I, I hope they can make it look that nice in reality. So that's, that is, that's my reporting, John. Did you, did you talk to anyone there? Do any, no, I, I literally had like 20 minutes. So I just like sit, got in there and sat in, listened to some of the questions, got some of the, the financial details. I believe they have the, uh, um, your your guy McGuire said it was about 150 million is what they figured it would cost to build the thing, and then obviously with all the outline stuff, that's all. Who knows who's all paying for that? But it's all, you know, they want to have green space and they want to have it. They want to have it bikeable. They want to have restaurants and theaters and bowling alleys and kayak. Um, it sounds like it sounds like Big Top Liquor is not long for this world, guys. I'm sorry about that. Is um, furniture barn staying? I do, uh, it's on the right side of the road to stay, mm-hmm. but like the uh, Rainbow Foods is probably toast. Um, what else is over there? Gosh, um, that McDonald's is probably toast. Fuck. But uh, well, that is not a shame. What's the timing on this thing? Um, let's see. I think they said 2018. That that's correct. Opening twenty eighteen is what twenty eighteen, and then that's the rest of the stuff will fill in after that. What a burgeoning cosmopolitan city we live in. Yeah, good for us. We earned it, and we deserve so it. Honestly, don't leave the turf club alone. That's really all I ask for. Leave the turf club alone. <laughs> I love the turf club. 
I, I read the comments on the Star Tribune story about Why would you John. read the comments on any because Star Tribune the story? The number one dumbass. rule. Because God, I, wanted to see, I wanted to see what local idiots were saying. And to a person, they all were mad at Ziggy Wilf, Betty Hodges, or both. Well, I mean, I, if you're, if you, I mean, like, I can understand the anger at Hodges if you're like a Minneapolis bobo for like, you know, not letting, keeping the uh, United in, in Minneapolis. I could understand that. Sure. But um, beyond that, I don't really know what else you can, I don't know what yelling at Ziggy is going to accomplish. It's not going to accomplish anything. It never has accomplished anything. Sometimes yeah. it makes but you feel better. doesn't stop Star Tribune commenters. Nothing will. Nothing will stop hey. you. Good journalism, Stu. Did you did you have Thank a you. press pass that said "supportive podcast" on it? I did. It was not supportive podcast, but I did have my name on it. So. Damn it! Did it have a media organization on it? American Public Media. Oh, your job. actual job. Oh. Real cool. Real cool. Real cool. Yeah, big time. Sorry about that. All right, we are running late. Can we quickly talk about the Minnesota Wild? What the hell has happened to this team? They're amazing, and now they suck again. Right? What's what's the status? <laughs> Uh, they won four straight games and then they lost one game. Okay, okay, so that's so, good. They're back in the picture. Yeah. Now, um, Sean, are the Islanders or the Rangers the home te- your home team over there? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm from Southern Minnesota. I, I don't. You don't know no. anyone else to. <laughs> the Rangers. I, I'm a Rangers guy. Like I, for whatever reason, I, I like the Rangers. Um, like friends you of mine. The Islanders have all of the Minnesota guys. I, like I, I, I don't. I didn't know that they did. So, I, I, oh, right. So right now, um, I think I, mean, I seem to have that kind of underdog spirit. So I guess I should go for that. But since I moved to New York, I, I've kind of started bonding with the big bad New York team. So it Rangers, it is. Respect. I think Clarence hates the Rangers, doesn't he? I well, I hate any all other teams that are. Well, I hate all other teams. That's it. Oh, yep. okay. That's, 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 no further qualification. Yeah, you get that. Clarence, can you explain to people what the Wild are doing different under Torchetti? Lucy Goosey, John. Freedom. Uh, Freedom. They are not worried about... So, to a player, they all claim that they aren't worried about... Uh, on offense, they are worried about offense, not playing defense, which seems like just a very odd thing to maybe an odd concept. Overly grab. simplistic, but an overly simplistic. But let me ask you this: So, John, you are Vanek, and Roxy, you are Zucker. Okay, and you oh, are yes. going down the ice on a two-on-two. You have the puck. Okay, mm-hmm. Roxy, you got the puck. Oh yeah. Two on two. Slap okay. shot. You got the puck. You cross the blue line. Slap slapper. What are you thinking about? Wrister, upper left. No, you're wrong. Defense. <laughs> you need to be thinking about defense, Brent. That was Brent. That was the old. <laughs> Is if you have the puck, don't have the puck. Uh, defense. That's what you need to be thinking about. But coach, I'm on, I'm on a break. Defense. But coach, I'm on a breakaway. It, defense. Coach, it's an overtime shootout. That I don't defense. That's what you need to be thinking about <laughs> all the time. Uh, do you buy that or not? That's what the players are saying. I they scored like uh, 
you know, in that 23-game swoon or whatever it was, they scored, like, I don't know, something ridiculous, like 30 goals. And then in four games, they scored 23 goals. Some, again, some, there are 21 goals. Especially the Blackhawks, oh. who are really good, too, right? I mean, that's... And, and yeah, I mean, they made one of the best teams in the league just look absolutely ridiculous. So... At one point, the Wild had 23 goals in their final 12 games with Yo as the coach and 23 goals in the first 12 periods of Torchetti being the coach. Ooh, so the good. numbers bear it out. Um, I don't know. The numbers bear it out. So okay. the eye test bears it out. The numbers bear it out. The players are all saying it. I don't know how you can argue it as a fact. If all three of those things come together, how is that not it? There's a certain subset of fans, or maybe not even fans, people, who are shitting on the wild for giving up on the other coach, and all of a sudden they're good again. Do you... Where do you fall on that? Is there a component that can say the coach gave up on them also? No. That's that's just not possible. That the coach cutting and scratching players... uh, without merit, uh, in my opinion, that that's not a form of giving up? Well, I guess I was thinking more about effort level. So they were accused... Giving up is giving up. Whether it's effort or it's scratching players that can help you win, it's still giving up. In a way, I guess I was just saying, I have no idea if they were actually giving their full effort or not, but that seems to be somewhat of an accusation of like these guys were half-assing it and then all of a sudden their guy left and they were, oh, now we're grown-ups and we can whatever. So you think there's no credence to that or is there a little bit or what's the... Mm, I, I, I don't know. I think it's human nature at some point if you're if you're just tired of his shit, whether it's at your job and your boss, you're just like, I can't handle one more goddamn thing he says. <laughs> you know, somebody saying, nope, you got to go to work every single day and give 110% whether your boss is great or he's a horse's ass you're explaining most of the american workforce we all hear well, i mean I like the world's that, workforce but... i don't know that it matters yeah sure. uh, everybody it's, it's just human nature to at some point you just enough is enough i can't take it anymore and i'm not going to give a hundred percent today huh. I, i'm just tired of his shit uh whose fault is that is it the boss's fault or the person's fault I, what difference does it make? I guess at the end of the day, he needed to go. Hmm. All right. I've got I've got a little bit of a theory here, and it's not really a theory so much as just an observation. Is this the fisting thing? What's that? Is this the fisting? The no, players. It says, fisting? It says nothing to do with fisting. Okay. Is this fine. like if young Metro don't trust you, he's going to shoot you, or is this a whole different thing? So, you, you, got, you, you have Mike Yo, who clearly trusted every one of the veterans to do whatever and then was disappointed when they didn't come through for him or didn't give effort. He basically mm-hmm. just let them do whatever they wanted. Mm-hmm. And, he, you know, there was, a, there was an interview today that I think, I think the transcript went up on StarTribune.com. Yo met with a, a bunch of media members and stuff where he basically said, I'm going to give this to the leaders and let them take care of it. So he basically let these old guys do whatever they want and somehow was shocked when the old guys didn't necessarily give a full effort 
and the younger guys got pissed off because none of the older guys got had to pay for anything. Then you bring in Torchetti, who's been the coach of the AHL team for three years. He doesn't know any of the old guys because none of them played in the AHL in the last three years. Whereas every one of these young guys that was coming up had played for Torchetti at some point in Iowa. Coyle and Gromlin and everybody had spent some time in the AHL playing for him. So suddenly, you got a guy walking in the door that knows the names of everybody under 26, but is just meeting all these guys who are 35 for the first time. Suddenly, it puts a little spring in the veteran's step where maybe the coach isn't going to play you 20 minutes a game just because you're mm-hmm. 33 years old and you're one of the leaders. Why is that? That seems to be a reasonable opinion, just as reasonable as any. So who has he been playing more than before? I think I, I think if you look at it, the ice time has been distributed much more evenly mm-hmm. between all of the lines and all of the... You know, Clarence, Clarence keeps better track of the power play time that guys are getting, or maybe that was just when Danny Heatley was around that he kept track of the <laughs> yeah, power it, play It time. was, yeah. Yeah. That was my, uh, that, yeah, that was my bugaboo. There's my picadillo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We talked about that once or twice. Yeah, I'm glad, I was glad to see that one go. That was a lot of goddamn work. Mm, I bet. <laughs> there was a being lot of facts. Being that angry. Every two or three days. You're so anyway, that's now. all I really. That's all I really have to say about George Eddie. Well, there's. It'll be interesting, obviously, to see how this plays out the rest of the year. It will. What? It'll be very interesting. I really do. Do you have, up, do you have updated playoff odds for us, Brandon? Oh uh, no, I don't. Uh, let's see here. If I knew how to look them look them up myself, I would. Hold on, let me see if I can figure this out. No, no, this is my thing, John. Oh, this is your bit? All right, sorry. I'm not looking it up anymore. Uh, I am trying to get this page to load. Somebody start tap dancing for like two seconds. What Brandon Brandon is doing right now is he's going to HockeyReference.com, our favorite hockey site, and he's clicking on forecast in the standings area. Uh And he's going to tell us from that page, and I think... Hockey Reference uses strength of schedule and SRS and all that stuff to give us a number of what the chances are the Wild make the playoffs this year. He's going there, and he's going to tell us what it is. And is that enough dancing, Brandon? That's perfect. That and nice. most of the time, we, uh, you guys will say, oh, I think there's about a 4% chance. And yeah. it's usually there's like a neg- we always say there's a negative 27% chance, and Brandon's like, nope, it's actually 93%. Yes, it's a fun game that we play. So, do you guys? Okay, so I have it. I have it ready to go. Updated wild playoff odds. Yep. Last time we talked, I thought it was fifteen, and it turned out to be forty-seven or something like that. Correct. So this time, I'm going to say they won four in a row, but Nashville also won a couple in a row. So I'm going to say it hasn't changed that much. It's forty-nine percent. Anyone else? Anybody? Uh, fun to guess. 47. 52.7%. Really? Wow, I'm pretty proud of us right now. And Colorado is 47.3%. So that's, there you go. So just barely ahead of Colorado. I'm not sure whether I want the Wild to make the playoffs more than I want Colorado and Patrick Wall to miss the playoffs. It's such a close run thing between those two things. Well, that's a beautiful thing that they're that related. 
Oh, I just, I, I hate so many people. Wild are down two points to them, but they also have three extra games remaining, according to whenever this was most recently updated. So, so there's your reasons. Fifty-two percent, the juggernaut Minnesota Wild, coming. They're coming. They're Better coming. than even odds to make the playoffs. It's amazing. Fucking weak. Uh, okay, I think that's about up. About it for me. Sh- yeah. Sean, do you have anything to contribute about the Timberwolves? Um, no. I mean, <laughs> not anything that hasn't been said five million times by people who are smarter than me. No, that's what we do on the podcast. We take things that we are said by everything. people who are smarter than us, and we repeat them as if they were our own, and we say them over and over and over again until people start to think that that's what we say. Sean, I, I, I've been around you long enough to learn that trick. You're great at writing books, but you got a lot to learn about stealing other people's ideas for podcasts. It's very true. Okay. It's a learned I'll behavior. I... <laughs> no, I have nothing. I, I have nothing. Well, if you do, uh, you know where to find us, and uh, we know where to find you. Twitter, I'm I, Rise and if Fire. If I think of something after we hang up, can, I, can we get back on quick and I, I say something? <laughs> of course. <laughs> okay. This Google Hangout is always open, and you just sort of check in whenever you want. If we're if we're around, we're around. If not, it's just always it's just staring at my ceiling all day long. I thought maybe one of you was on like twenty four hours. One of you always has to be like on. Yeah, we just handling it. Yeah, it's one of those weird like Voyager cam things from the. I don't know what I'm talking about, we, Boyer. We we do sort of, we leave it on, and every so often I check in just in the middle of the day, and Clarence is on just talking, and he's eating lunch, just his lunch break, and he's just mumbling about some yeah. something crazy. Eating a sandwich. And then I totally got it. <laughs> so here's just my theory about fisting. Oh boy! All right, that's enough. I'm calling it. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it was a pleasure, Sean. Good luck with everything. I'd love to have you. Uh, we'd love to have you back on again. And uh, again, rise and fire, author Sean Fury. Thanks again, and uh, we'll catch up soon. Bye. Thanks, Sean. Goodbye. Thanks, guys. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 